0: Good morning. It's good to be with you this morning. If you have a Bible nearby, I want to encourage you to open it up or flip to it or whatever device you have that has it with you in front of you. To John chapter 20, I want to ask you to do this so that you can, so that we can follow along together as we read and consider these words. If you were paying attention to the sporting world this past week, you may have heard over the last couple of weeks, you may have seen a commercial from Coke Industries that had pic- images of of people struggling to accomplish something. There was a little baby trying to learn how to walk. There were athletes learning and trying and failing and trying again. And as we saw these images flash forth, we heard these words in the voiceover. In every challenge, there are two rivals. Belief and doubt. Belief is outnumbered but not outsmarted. And when the score is settled, belief rises to the top. It makes you want to go score something or beat something or win something. It's incredibly inspiring to see these images and to hear those words slowly over the top of, the, of those images. But is that the way that it works for us? Are belief and doubt really two rivals? Are they equal and opposites? It's the question I wanna bring for us to get to, to John chapter 20 this morning. John 20, is one. John, the book of John is one of the accounts that we have of Jesus's life, death, and his resurrection. Spoiler alert, Easter's coming. In the number of weeks at the beginning of April, we'll celebrate together the resurrection of our Lord Jesus. Over the next several weeks, though, we'll consider events leading up to that and what Jesus said, especially from the cross. But this morning, I want to fast forward ahead to events happening the day that he rose from the dead and then the week later. You see, John 20 begins on the first day of the week. Jesus had died the Friday before, and it's Sunday morning. And one of Jesus' followers, a woman named Mary Magdalene, a woman that he had healed shows up at the tomb expecting to pay her respects to her dear friend she finds the stone from that tomb rolled away and she looks inside and it's empty and she begins to wonder so she goes and gets two of Jesus' followers a man named Peter and a man not named but whom we know is John the one who wrote these very words and they look in and the tomb is empty and the men leave to go back home wondering what's happened but Mary stays in sadness and Jesus appears to her Later that same evening, most of Jesus' followers are gathered in a room with locked doors because they're scared of what the authorities will do to them because they know this is serious business. And Jesus appears to them, and he shows them his, his, his wounds that he experienced. But he appears to them as a physical living being, a man standing in front of them, having risen from the dead, and they're amazed. And then we come to our text in chapter 20, verse 24. I'll read this, read this as we consider it this morning. Eight days later, his disciples were, were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, "'Peace be with you.' Then he said to Thomas, "'Put your finger here and see my hands, "'and put, your, put out your hand and place it to my side. "'Do not disbelieve, but believe.' Thomas answered him, "'My Lord and my God.' Jesus said to him, "'Have you believed because you have seen me? "'Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are, not, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in His name. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray as we consider these words together. Father, in this cold... Still, wintry morning, we pray that you would send out your light and your truth. That they would lead us, that they would guide us, that they would take us to the place where you dwell, that we might know you. We pray this not by insight, not by scheduling prowess or planning. We pray this because you promised to meet with us through your word, and we look to you through your Holy Spirit, by the blood of your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. There's a truth in my life that I've learned as a homeowner and as a car owner, and it is this. When something goes wrong, it's usually not just one thing going wrong, it's usually two or three things going wrong all at the same time. See, a number of years ago, we woke up on a July morning, and I'll t- I remember it was a July morning because it was already warm in the Kansas City suburb of Olathe, and we heard our furnace running, but the house was not cooling down like we expected it to be. The, the temperature began to rise. And it was my wife who notices things like this much faster than I do said, I think something's wrong. And she was right. You see, part of the furnace, and this is one of my learning processes, you know that actually the, the air conditioner, which is outside, the unit that's outside actually still depends on the furnace that's inside. Even in the summer to work, that's how these things work. There's a fan in the bottom of the furnace that for the blows cool air through your home. Well, on this getting warm Wednesday morning in July, the fan had broken. The motor had stopped working. Thought, okay, I have a problem. First mistake, I think it's only one problem. So I do what, we, what, we, what my wife and I always do when something breaks, we call our dads. My dad grew up on a farm, he grew up fixing everything in sight, and has continued to do that to this day even in, in his retired, retirement years. And we also called my wife's dad, who's a retired HVAC guy who did HVAC work in an in office building in downtown St. Louis for a number of years. So between the two of our dads, they were able to help me isolate the problem and, and say, this is probably what you need to do. Here's how you can check the, electric, the electricity and all that stuff, which again is not, is not first nature to me at all. Um, and so we began to, to isolate the problem, and then I called into work to say, to to the church where I work to say I'm not gonna be able to make it in today Hopefully this afternoon, but I've got to fix my furnace because it's gonna get hot and this needs attention now Totally fine totally understood. In fact the pastor that I worked with at the time said call Mark Mark knows things. He knows how to fix things. He'll help you out and I'm thinking Mark's gonna come over to my house and Walk me through this and help me through this and we're gonna be done by noon I'll be in the office by one get ready for the Bible study that I have to lead that night life is gonna be great Again, I thought I had one problem, but I didn't have just one problem. Now, thankfully, there was only one thing wrong with the furnace. Indeed, this motor had gone out. But when I called Mark, Mark said, oh, you need to get the part at such and such a store. It should be easy, no problem. You'll be able to install it. You'll be good to go. It fits right into this thing. You'll be fine. That was not the case. He, did, he was right about where I could call. And I, I needed his help because I, I wouldn't know where to find a motor for my furnace. He told me the right place, and they were able to help me out. But when I got home, I looked at the motor, and I looked at the contraption in the bottom of the furnace, they didn't fit the way they were supposed to fit. The holes to the holes to screw it to hold it into place were not in the same place. And this is where we realized that John had more than one problem all at once. You see, there's the problem of knowledge, the problem of what's wrong, and what does it take? What, what do I need to fix it? What's the part that I need? And I had my trusty Reader's Digest homeowners Manual, which I highly recommend to anybody present who needs help with some stuff like this. It's been very helpful. But even that wasn't enough. Because what I realized was when the parts don't fit, I get frustrated. And when things don't come easily, I get more frustrated. And I find myself using every bad word that I know. And I find myself making up new bad words and extremely frustrated, and, it, and the day went on, and it's getting warmer in the house, and the, the time that I've gotta leave the Bible study that night's coming closer and closer, and I think, I don't know what I'm gonna do. Now, by God's grace, and only by God's grace alone, our furnace was fixed that day. I was able to get the piece in. I had to redrill holes, which makes me nervous around electricity, and I had to, you know, with a hope and a prayer, put this thing in, and it actually finally worked. But the reality of those moments in my life, of which there have been many, are this. Having the knowledge of what's wrong is not always enough. Because in the moment where you're trying to fix something and the parts aren't fitting, and it's not happening like you think it would, and there's pressures from outside coming in about getting this done so I can get to the next thing that I feel like I need to do that night. The reality is, I'm wondering, not only do I know how to do this, but will I do this? Can I accomplish the task that's before me? It's a question of do I have it? Do I have what it takes to stick with this problem to keep trying in the midst of my frustration, in the midst of my impatience, in the midst of my arrogance that thinks this should be easy and it's not, something, something just horribly wrong with the world now because my life seems to be falling apart, which it was not. At issue with us, when it comes to the nature of belief, is I wonder if we often think that belief is reducible to one thing, one silver bullet, that if we just do this, if we just have this piece of information, if this person that I long to believe in, Jesus, would have just this one piece of data, then the dominoes would fall, everything would be fine, and we would go on our merry way. We miss the complexity of what it is to believe. We miss the complexity of unbelief and even of doubt. Now what's fascinating about this, this passage, as you heard me read earlier, if you jump to verse 27, at the end of it, while well, we hear Jesus saying to Thomas, the one in this place of disbelief, we hear him command to Thomas, do not disbelieve, but believe. It is a command. And in the world that we live in, this is akin to telling someone, to commanding someone to fall in love with someone else. It's it's a moral and ethical dilemma for us. How dare you tell me what to believe in. It's up to me to believe in it myself If this is the world we live in How do we how do we reconcile this? How does belief happen? For some of us. It's not a question of belief as, as, as belief versus unbelief as it is belief and doubt if we struggle with the questions about the world we live in if we struggle with the questions about our lives how? Do we find the confidence of belief? What do we do when our behavior or our circumstances convey something other more than real to us than what the Bible says is true? How does belief happen especially in a time when unbelief is the thing that is most often assumed? How do we face the questions that arise? How do we continue in belief? What do we do when when who we are and where we are leads us to ask can I still believe? Or do I believe anymore? Or even did I ever believe? I want to ask those questions of the text before us this morning. Noting that it's never as simple as we want to make it. But at times, sometimes it is. Notice where the passage begins. There's an important detail, a couple of important details even at the beginning in verse 24. Thomas, one of the twelve, which tells us he's one of Jesus' closest followers. Thomas was there from the beginning. He had spent the better part of three years with Jesus and with these other men hearing Jesus teach seeing him perform miracles seeing him do things that literally blew their minds but he wasn't there when Jesus first appeared to the others we don't know why we're not told why but he simply wasn't there but notice verse 26 verse 25 I'm sorry the other disciples approached Thomas with this very bold claim we have seen the Lord Those words bear the weight of the entirety of this passage. It comes from their direct experience. You see, in the previous section, we're told that Jesus had appeared to them. And he said to them in verse 20, he he showed them his hands and his side, as if to say, it's really me. You see, the weight of their statement, we have seen the Lord, is the foundation of the Christian message. That Jesus was put to death, and three days later, rose bodily from the grave. It wasn't Jesus rose in our hearts and we're all happy now. It wasn't simply a sense of inner peace. It wasn't a sense of calm. It was Jesus rose from the dead. Some years later, the Apostle Paul will write in 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ has not been raised, our faith is in vain. Your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. We are of all people most to be pitied. The ten, because Judas had already left, experienced this reality, but Thomas had not. And so they approached their brother with a bold claim. This foundation of the Christian faith, as much as, may be no, as as much as we may be known by politics, or we may or may want not want to be known by politics, by social issues, or by personal behaviors, this reality is the center of the Christian faith. We have seen the Lord. But Thomas is maybe equally bold, isn't he? They're continuing on in verse 25. What's his response? Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place in my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. I want you to hear in Thomas's bold statement there, there actually is something to be commended. And it is this. He gets the centrality of what's at stake here. He understands that if there is not a physical body, Jesus did not rise from the dead, and my faith would be in vain. We had a good three years, we had a good run with Jesus, but now on to the next thing. He actually gets that. Inner peace and a warm feeling are not enough for him. But I want to say this very carefully, based on what I said earlier. Thomas, contrary to history's name for him as Doubting Thomas, is not doubting. You see, Thomas is emphatic in his denial here. He is emphatic to say, I will never believe. Greek nerd moment, okay? In the Greek language, unlike English, when you want to pile on words, you just stick them right in front of each other. And so in English, we have this thing called a double negative. The Greek language does not. So in Greek, what he said, what actually is written here is, no, no, believe. I will never believe. He is emphatic, there is no question. This is not for him a lack of clarity or vagueness or maybe, maybe not. He is saying, I will never believe. It is for him an impossibility that what he's hearing would be true is true. So what do we do with that? I want you to think about doubt and unbelief this way. And this is a little bit crude, but I hope it will help. Doubt is that family member Maybe a brother, maybe a sister, maybe a cousin, who's often around, once in a while contributes to the conversation, once in a while says something that's helpful, but most of all is on the obnoxious side and unhelpful side and even annoying side. It's that that family member that is often at your holiday celebrations or big family events. You ask your parents, are they going to be there again this year? Oh, they're going to be there again this year. But they're still in the family, and so we strive to love them. That's doubt. Unbelief or disbelief is the guy that married your cousin for like six months and then took off and still shows up to everything as if he's a part of the family but it's not a part of the family. There's no question that this guy doesn't belong in the family. He tells bad jokes, he insults your grandma, he insults the food, he doesn't like anybody but he still shows up. He doesn't fit but he's still there. Now amazingly in Thomas's disbelief Jesus is still gracious to him, as we're going to see in just a moment. But he also speaks with a clarity to understand. For you this morning, what I want you to begin to see in this text is that Jesus invites the honest questions, both of doubt and especially of disbelief that you have. Jesus invites those questions. What are the questions you bring to the text this morning? What do you bring with you to church this morning? As I said earlier, some of you may be wondering, Do I, did I ever really believe this stuff? And you feel like you're on the outside looking in. I want you to learn to articulate what your questions are. To learn to bring clarity to where those things are that you're wrestling with. Is it a question of, did this really happen? Is there some historical account for this? Or is it a question of something personal? I've been hurt by believers. I don't want to be labeled as a Christian. Or some other reality in your life. And for those of you who doubt this morning, learn to articulate your questions and wrestle with them. You see, the Bible has, seems to have at least four or five words that, are, that, are, you, that would define the word doubt for us. Doubt is never commended by Scripture. It's never something we're commanded to do. But it's acknowledged as a reality of, the, of our human existence, right? Because for Thomas, what's the reality? He wasn't in the room the first time. The other disciples have seen the Lord. They can say they've seen the Lord because they were there and they actually did see the Lord. Thomas wasn't there. He brings very human, very natural questions to the table. We need to learn to articulate what our questions are and where they're coming from. Jesus is gracious to invite us to ask the honest questions that are before us. Can we do that? Can we ask the questions that are burdening us? Because everything is at stake. Notice what happens next. We're told it's a week later. It actually says in, at the beginning of verse 26, eight days later, they would have counted the day that they were on as the first day. So this is the next Sunday night, a week later. And where do we find the disciples? We're told in, these verse, in verses 26 and 27, that once again, they're behind locked, closed doors. And note how deeply personally Jesus responds to their questions and their fears. Because the reality is Jesus enters this locked room and he speaks a word of peace. Which if you skip back earlier, he did, a, he did previously in verse 19. So most of these guys know that he's alive, but they're still afraid. And Jesus pursues his scared, his weakened faith, his cowering followers who still don't seem to understand, who are still living in fear. Jesus comes back. It's not a one and done kind of situation. Jesus is present with them in a way that they need him to be present. And then look at verse 27. He says directly to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. And put, your, put, uh, and put out your hand and place it at my side. Compare that with verse 25. Jesus meets Thomas exactly where he is. And he speaks directly to his questions. Jesus sees and knows the struggle of unbelief. Now at this point, I want to get hypothetical for just a second, because at this point there's this reality that says if Thomas were to still have the stance of disbelief, of unbelief, he would have to own that disbelief as stemming from something other than his first question. If we're going to ask honest questions, you see, we need to be willing to face the honest answers that we get. And if we're not willing to face the honest answers that we get, we're probably were asking a different set of questions. And so let's go back and look at the first set of questions that we, we thought we were asking but probably aren't asking. It's something like this, writer Aldous Huxley, and you may have heard me say this before, wrote sometime in the 60s, I think I believe it was in the 60s, about his own way of life. He said, I had, no motives, for, I had motives for not wanting the world to have a meaning and consequently assumed that if it had none and was able, and was able without any difficulty to find satisfying reason for this assumption. He said, I wanted the world to be meaningless. And because I wanted the world to be meaningless, I could back up my argument. I had my conclusion the world is meaningless and therefore I can, I can look at my own assumptions and create my own assumptions to back this up. But he went on to say this, the philosophy of meaninglessness was essentially an instrument of liberation from a certain system of morality. He, and then he says this in, in, in wrap up, he, speaking of he and his friends, we objected to the morality because it interfered with our freedom. Huxley's being boldly honest there to say, to say this. We came to this conclusion that the world is meaningless, that there was no established system of morality. But being honest, we, we came to those conclusions because we didn't want a system of morality, so we chucked it from the beginning. Our baseline assumption was there is no system of morality. Why? Because we want to do what we want to do when we want to do it. We want freedom more than anything else as we define freedom. That's a man not willing to face the honest answers that he's, willing, that he's getting. If we're going to ask questions, we need to know we're going, we're, that, we're going to get honest, that we're going to get honest answers. It's what Jesus does for Thomas and it's what Jesus does for you and I. I have no doubt in my mind that many, if not most of us, have honest questions about faith, whether we're inside the camp or outside the camp. I'm not in any way dismissing those questions. And I want to challenge you to pursue the answers to those questions. But as you find answers, you may not like what you find. And you have to face those realities. We all have to face those realities. And oftentimes we're not. G.K. Chesterton famously once wrote that the Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting, it has been found difficult and left untried. We don't don't want to submit to these realities. And so we we leave them aside. Jesus is present and Jesus is direct. Even as He invites honest questions, He gives us honest answers and challenges us to face them. But there's something more that happens in this text. Look again at verse 29. Jesus then follows up with Thomas, Have you believed because because you have seen Me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Jesus is acknowledging something. It's not to insult or belittle Thomas's faith in any means. It's simply to state the reality, as if speaking to Thomas on behalf of all the disciples, really. You have seen, therefore you believe. But Jesus is noticing something else. That rather to acknowledge that this process, he's acknowledging that this process won't be repeated for many, many others to follow. That there is at the very heart of what it is to believe that we're accepting as true, we're basing our lives on something as true that we cannot always see the way we think we can see it. Hebrews chapter 11 begins with these words, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. It is a basic reality of the, of the truth of the scriptures that there are things happening in this world that we cannot see, that we cannot understand. We are not divine. You are not God. You don't get full information. You don't, none of us get full knowledge of anything happening in this world. We never are promised full explanation for anything. And Jesus is acknowledging that. He says, you've seen and therefore you believe, but many will come after you who won't see and yet believe. And he calls us blessed. Do you, do you see what Jesus is doing here? It's, I want to think of this as a, the Cirque du Soleil moment. My wife and I a long time ago were given tickets to see Cirque du Soleil live and if you've ever been to a live show it's this fantastic, it's like, I guess it's French or something for circus of something, 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 I don't speak French, but it's this, it's this amazing show where there's this, these, these daring acts of like high wire stuff and there's flips and jumps and stacking of peoples in ways that you didn't think was possible and it's astounding but one of the things that happens at a Cirque du Soleil show if you see it live is that they come up to the audience. And they pull out somebody out of the audience. And they bring him up. And they, in, our, in ours, they took a, I think they took his shirt off. And they started drawing on his chest or something like that. And they invite him into this, and to, to do these tricks. And you're thinking, oh, my goodness. You know, and at that point, it's one of those, there are two kinds of people in this world situations. People who are glad they sat in the front row. And are people who are glad they did not sit in the front row. Because you're thinking, man, what, what if this was me? And then you realize it's all part of the gimmick. Sorry to, to spoil the fun. But it's all part of the thing. This is part of the troupe. Right, and he's planted in the audience to make it look like that but you know, halfway through the show you're like there's no way this dude is just some guy off the, off the, out of the crowd chosen at random. But he's pulled onto the stage and invited into the show. That's what Jesus is doing here. You see what Jesus is doing in these words is he's reaching out of the page and through space and time to Manhattan, Kansas here and now and to anywhere that these words are read. Because what Jesus is doing is He's saying, there will come some after who will not see me like you've seen me and still believe. If you believe this morning, He's writing about you. He's writing about you. And how does this happen? Notice what John then adds in verse 31. He says in verse 30, Jesus did many other things in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But verse 31, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. Do you hear the weight of that text based on what, about what this book is? You see, what Jesus is saying, what John is saying is, these words have been written down so that many who come after will read them and therefore believe. This blows my mind. That John has an awareness that through his penning these words on some sort of piece of parchment with some sort of type of ink, Thousands of years later, we will be gathered in the name of that same one, seeking belief, seeking to understand who he is and what he's accomplished for us, that we might have life in his name. You see, the Bible is not simply a record of the good news about Jesus. It is the good news of Jesus. This book that we hold in our hands is something amazing, and unlike any other document in the course of history, in the course of space and time, it is the very word of God proclaiming to you the risen savior Jesus Christ so that you might believe and that by believing you might have life in his name. Jesus speaks about what is on those who would not be able to see the way Thomas and the others did. He knows he's asking us to do something that seems to be outside of daily experience. He knows that he's asking to do something that that you may not be able to verify specifically with your five senses. And that your intellect on its own would not be able to figure all this stuff out. He knows that he's talking about something, just to use this word, that is supernatural happening in the course of space and time the invasion of the divine into our world. He knows that he's calling us to that. But it's not completely crazy. Because John, a guy who was there for almost all these events, wrote them down. And so did Matthew, another one of the disciples. And a man named Luke who was not there with Jesus but who knew people who knew Jesus and studied and worked over the course of years was able to write down the events as they occurred. And Mark, same thing. Mark seems to have known the the Apostle Peter who was also at most of these events. And Mark wrote down the stories. You see, we have eyewitnesses account. We have the realities of lives being changed in verifiable kinds of ways. In the Bible, we don't just have a record about the good news of Jesus. We have the good news itself. It's written down so that you might believe. There's a quotation at the beginning of your uh, bulletins from a man named Oz Guinness, who's an author, someone called an apologist, one who has written extensively about the truth of the Christian faith and in its defense. In one of his his earlier books from the mid 70s, he tells a story of traveling somewhere in the world and seeing a, a worker leading an animal, a work animal, um, in the course of farm-type work. And the animal was heavily burdened by what, what, it was, what it was asked to do, by what it was pulling. And so the owner, out of frustration, began to beat the animal. And the animal got more stubborn and slowed down and, and, and eventually just sat down where it was because it couldn't go any further. And the owner beat it even more as if that would actually help the animal get to going where it needed to go. I fear But that's maybe what you hear me doing this morning, and I I don't want that to be the case. Because I fear that oftentimes that's how we treat our own faith. As if if there's a problem or a struggle or a question, we have to beat it out of ourselves, literally or maybe even figuratively. We we, we, We dare not ask questions that are difficult. We dare not wrestle with what is true. And so we fight, fight, fight. And we may even treat others that way, loved ones, siblings, children, parents other good friends. Jesus doesn't treat us that way. In inviting honest questions and giving us honest answers and inviting us into the conversation Jesus is is not beating you for what you do or don't believe and especially not for the, the things that are difficult. What Jesus sets before us though, what's at stake here is everything and I want you to hear that. You see, the trajectory of John's Gospel is that very thing. Jesus says in John chapter 5, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears My word and believes Him who sent Me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Whoever hears My word and believes Him who sent Me has eternal life. In John 10.10, Jesus says, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. And then in John 17, as Jesus is praying to His Father, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. The trajectory of the Gospel of John, the trajectory of the whole of the Bible, is that we would know God. That's the eternal life about which we speak. Everything is at stake. Everything is at stake. I want to tell you this morning, your experience is not the measure of truth. That doesn't mean your experience and its components, thoughts, emotions, questions, etc., are not legitimate at all, but they all call for more. Your experience is real even as Thomas's is real. The questions that you have are legitimate and need answers and call out for answers. But We have to acknowledge even for Thomas, his experience wasn't enough, especially his initial experience. And so my challenge to you is this. Have you considered that there is a spiritual struggle behind your current experience? It doesn't always explain everything for us, not looking to blame here at all. But more often than not, a struggle with belief in particular, a struggle to embrace Jesus as the Bible presents him in all his glory and in all his work. There's something else behind that. And I want to challenge you to look into that and to consider that. And again, I want to say, if you're in the camp where you're like, well, I believe. That's awesome. That's great. Continue to ask the questions that are on your mind. And don't dismiss them. If for no other sake than for the people around you who are asking all kinds of questions, we need to learn to wrestle together because Jesus is enough and because everything is at stake. You see, at the heart of this passage, this book, this Bible, is the heart of this passage, the heart of the God, John's Gospel, at the heart of the whole of the Bible is this call to believe. It's the command of Jesus to believe. Please hear nothing less than that here. As we sin, as we're sinned against, as we question, as we doubt, as we struggle, as we lived in a world ravaged by sin and by our sins and by the sins of others, in a world that doesn't often make sense, Jesus calls us to believe. He invites your questions. He'll give you answers. And he invites you into the conversation. Let's pray. Father in heaven, what we're talking about is is more than than we could even come up with on our own We we have your word because you spoke we didn't come up with it we didn't create it and so I pray for us that you would continue to speak into the darkness of our lives and into the joys of our lives remind us that you are real, remind us that you are at work Father I pray that you would give us courage to ask and courage to accept what we hear and learn. Grow us, we ask, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen.